Hello and welcome to this edition of Nightlight. We left off in our last time together talking about the power of prayer, the responsibility of the people of God to stand in intercession, and how utterly foolish and wrong and unbelieving it is for us to ever sink to the level of saying, which I have been guilty of doing myself in times past, well, all we can do is pray. Uh, that's a complete misunderstanding of prayer from so many angles. I'm tempted to go off on it here, but I've done that previously, and we don't need to cover that, that territory again. The power of intercession is the first call uh, of what we can do in the face of the day that we live in. But we left off talking about, well, what do we do? What's next? You don't need to talk anymore about the nature of the circumstances or the, the problems of the earth. What do we do in response to it? Um, I think one of the first things we need to do is stop trying to handle everything that we hear. Now, this is one of the problems of having an international news media, so-called, beside the fact that most of it is propaganda and baloney, and false information. Um, it also, whether it's true or false, is more than the human mind can grasp. And when we try to wrestle with all of that, we end up doing nothing because we're so overwhelmed by it all. Uh, and one of the ways that we learn to stop doing that is by grasping the nature of the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 says, through the church, this is the amplified ver version, through the church, the complicated, many-sided wisdom of God in all its infinite variety and innumerable aspects, <laughs> love the amplified, might now be made known by the church to the principalities and powers. One thing about reading the Amplified is it's it's like a rhinoceros. They say when a rhinoceros attacks something, if it's more than 15 feet away, it forgets what it was attacking before it gets to it. Sometimes reading the Amplified, by the time you get to the end of the verse, you forgot what the first part of the verse said. Through the church, the complicated, many-sided Wisdom of God in all of its infinite variety and innumerable aspects might be, might be manifested to the principalities and powers. To me, this verse is referring to the ever-complicated, ever-increasing confusion and layers and layers of evil perpetrated in the earth through evil men by principalities and powers. Uh, Philip's translation says it like this, All angelic powers should see the complex wisdom of God being worked out through the church. That one of the purposes of God in the body of Christ is to manifest God's redemptive, creative, ever-increasingly creative wisdom so that the enemy comes up with something, God has an answer for it through his people constant creating uh, of of wisdom and purity and goodness and life and light in the face of ever-increasing evil. So um, you have that up against what's happening in the world. Luke 21, verses 25 and 26, we've referred to numerous times. The nations in turmoil with perplexity. Men's hearts failing them from fear, from having looked after what is coming on the earth, or trying to look after what's coming on the earth. Uh, I think that could be interpreted two ways, not only frightened by what they see coming, but frightened by how they're trying to look after it all. Because uh, the use of the word perplexity, turmoil with perplexity. Is there any phrase that could be more accurate? for where we are now in the international and national scene. 
You can't keep up with it all. I can't either. We're not called to keep up with it all. We're called to be faithful where we are. And uh, that that's really where I want us to focus our time together today. What are you supposed to do with where you are? What is in your hand that God has placed there? And uh, how does the kingdom of God want to manifest itself through you in your your interactions with people. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, I want you to know what a great struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea, which is just a few miles from Colossae, and for all those who have not personally seen my face. He said, I'm I'm concerned that your hearts may be encouraged. Now, you know, the word encourage is a word that has become really uh, misunderstood and misused. And for some reason, at least in my thinking, it's become greatly decreased in power. Encouragement sounds like uh, nothing more than a pat on the back and a pep talk or a kind word. And certainly there's times when a pat on the back and a kind word can go a long way. But encouragement in in its original use meant a much more powerful impartation than just trying to make you feel better uh, with a pep talk. It means to be filled with courage. So when he says, "I'm I'm praying that your hearts may be filled with courage, courage is a far stronger word than encouragement, even though technically it's the same thing. But encouragement has become weakened. It's it's a much weaker word. So when you hear this verse that he's praying that their hearts would be encouraged, think much larger, larger than just pep talk. Uh, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. I know Paul's sentences get really long, but all these words hang together for a purpose. Their encouragement, their their power to stand against fearful circumstances. That's encouragement. That's courage. Comes from their relationship to God and to each other and is attained from the full assurance that comes by understanding. The full assurance that comes by understanding. Uh, We don't have time to even touch on it, but the book of Daniel, I guess if there's ever one book that has a picture of this understanding, this full assurance of understanding, it's the book of Daniel. The, the, the word understand, understood, or understanding is used almost 25, 26 times in the whole book. That's at least tw- twice a chapter, over twice a chapter. Uh, those who know their God will be strong. They will understand the times. They will understand what's going on. And as a result, they'll be strong and do exploits. Full assurance that comes by understanding. 1 John 5.19 says, The Son of God has come and given us an understanding. Uh, this is, uh, And this is what gives Daniel the power to stand against Babylon and against Persia and against the rise and fall of kings and empires. Daniel understands the world he lives in and understands the movements politically and internationally. Uh, because he understands uh, the spirit world and he understands what's going on in both the invisible and the visible. And it's because he understands the invisible, he's able to deal with the visible, just like Moses in Hebrews 11, where he, you know, he withstood the wickedness of Egypt because he could see him who is invisible. Um, There are more that be with us than those that be with them. The prophet Elijah said, prayed that his servant's eyes would be open, that he would see reality. So this full assurance of understanding is not just a cerebral grasping of information. 
uh, it has to do with the, the Hebrew concept of wisdom, understanding, and creativity. So what, I'm, what I want you to think about in the time we're together today is the, the, the wisdom of God, which he says he will manifest in the earth to the principalities and powers who are trying to turn the earth into a quagmire of perplexing, hopeless turmoil. God meets that evil by manifesting his body in the earth who, who are given a full assurance of understanding, who are given the power to manifest in an infinite variety and innumerable aspects all the wisdom of God. So what does that mean? It means, for one thing, that every everything that's going on in the earth today that seems perplexing to the point of impossible has um, an answer in the body of Christ. Not, not the dead church system that we sadly tend to think of when we say the word church, but the real church that Song of Solomon refers to as beautiful as the sun, terrifying as the moon, and uh, frightening as an army with banners, or beautiful as the sun, glorious as the moon, and terrifying as an army with banners. Uh, Shining like the sun, but shining also like the moon in darkness, and a terrifying resistor to the attempts of darkness to overrun the earth. And when you have a, a pre-trib rapture mentality, and I'm not necessarily here to dis, to argue against or for pre or trib or all the rest of it, I, it's just that if your mentality is we do the best we can, and any minute we're going to fly out of here. I, I, I've got friends who believe in pre-trib rapture who don't have that mentality. They're not they're not thinking. Well, we'll just hold the dike as long as we can, and then we'll fly out the window and uh, let let all hell break loose. They don't think like that. So I'm not saying that if you are pre-trib in your theology, that means you're automatically uh, one who thinks in terms of escapism instead of standing and occupying and possessing the kingdom. But to be honest, I, I even though i got friends who don't have that attitude, I, I do wonder how they manage the tension. Because it's really hard to believe that you understand the call of standing and manifesting God's kingdom in the earth while at the same time expecting to fly off of it any minute. So uh, I know I probably stirred up controversy there that I, I, di- I didn't intend to, but regardless of what you believe about the second coming, what are we going to do with what, what, what we have in front of us now? See, we we got plenty to deal with. We've got inner city agony. We've got destruction in in the lives of children. We've got marriages falling apart. We've got sexual insanity unparalleled in history. We've got slave trade. Uh, we've got in. I mean, you know. I just got through telling you don't focus on all the stuff, <laughs> and then I start listing it all so you'll get focused on it, but. Uh, the sad fact is many of us get so overwhelmed by focusing on all the stuff that we end up, therefore, doing nothing about any of it. What I'm trying to awaken in us today is what are we supposed to do with where we are and how are we supposed to engage it in some redemptive way? So I want to give you an overview of the, the, the word God has about the church in the end of the age and I can't get away from Ephesians 3.10. I mean, we could probably spend the whole hour just there. How the church manifests the complicated, many-sided variety of innumerable aspects of wisdom. I mean, that's the, the, the richness of language Paul uses there is to try to get across that there are things God wants to teach the church to do that are not necessarily found in a chapter and verse. They, they don't contradict Scripture, obviously, but everything is not found in a in a text, a, a proof text. So uh, the great calling of God on many people today is not to preach, 
not putting down on preaching, but we got we, we got enough preachers. We need creative business people and creative uh, teachers and creative football coaches and creative uh, in- engineers and and people who have great insight in uh, the development of of technologies and all these other things that God intends to manifest in answer to the perplexing confusion of the world system. Uh, which is going to bring about the final conflict to the end of the age. Then he says, uh, Paul says, this full assurance that comes by understanding. Understanding what? Well, resulting in true knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ himself, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What he wants you to have full assurance about and what he wants you to understand is not a set of principles or a set of concepts or a set of theological uh, dogmas. But this full assurance of understanding comes from a union with a person himself, capital H, because in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So there's, there's a comfort that comes to us when we fully understand certain truths. Now, this word comfort is kind of like the word encouragement. Comfort has two meanings in Greek. It can mean tran- tranquilize, to, to make you feel warm and fuzzy. Or it can mean brace yourself for what's coming so you're not overwhelmed by it. And that's the word used here. The comfort and assurance that comes by understanding. The understanding is to help brace ourselves for action, not comfort ourselves for inaction. Okay, did you get that? It's bracing ourselves for action, not comforting ourselves for inaction. Now, the parallels between Israel and its beginnings and the church at the close of the age bring all this out uh, in detail. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, which I sp- spoke about previously and have spoken about numerous times, but Deuteronomy 4, verses 3 through 8, he says, Your eyes, speaking to Israel, your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor. The Lord your God has destroyed from among you those who worshipped Baal Peor, but you who had held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. Now, this takes us in a whole nother direction. We don't have time to adequately cover. What was Baal Peor? It was the worship of the worst imaginable kinds of perversions. Um, Peor is the Hebrew word for a crevice or a crack. The idea here is that Baal was the, the 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 god of the worship of the crevice. It's a, it's very vulgar, and I don't mean to paint dirty pictures in your mind. But the the implication was that it was the absolute total celebration, not of life in what marital union produces, but in the 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 rampant cannibalistic orgiastic celebration of uh, human orifices of all kinds for all kinds of purposes. Forgive me if I'm speaking uh, in a way that causes you to have to explain things to your children. Um, but th- this this is what Paul is, or what he, uh, Moses is talking about here. He's saying, look, this is the world system. This is where they're headed. And this will, this ends in destruction but you, on the other hand, are alive, every one of you today. And this brings this scripture right down to where we are now. We are now being given the same choice. You've got two choices, Sodom or Jerusalem. Uh, the, the, the riches of the treasures of Sodom, which Abraham turned away from, or the king of Jerusalem who only had bread and wine, symbol of the communion and union of heart and intimacy between us and our God. And uh, Abram chose Melchizedek, thankfully. What's your, what's your choice? What's my choice? We make that choice new every day. Anyway, I can't dwell on that, but 
He says, Moses says, I've taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me so that you will know how to live in the land when you enter in and possess it. So keep and obey them for they they are your wisdom and your understanding that will cause the surrounding nations who will hear all these statutes to say, what a great nation. What a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there who has such wise statutes and judgments? We are to be a nation of people, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a, a peculiar people called out of the world who are against the world for the world's sake. And we are to live in a level of wisdom and understanding, not only in the way we live morally and the way we maintain our relationships, but also leading the way in creative thinking, innovative uh, movements, and productions of life-giving inventions of all kinds. Uh, that's the intention of the of the of the Lord for the church. Now, sadly, most of the time, the church just waits to see what the world does, and then we do a Christian version of it, which is usually not not up to par. So, real quick, let's look at the Hebrew words for wisdom just briefly to examine some things about it. Exodus chapter thirty-one, verse three says, "The Lord says, I called by name Bezalel." And have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of invention and craftsmanship. So we have here a picture of all three verse, all three versions of Hebrew wisdom. Um, I'm just going to mention these three words. Each one of them would require an hour at least on their own, but the first word that we tend to, to think of as wisdom in Hebrew, uh, hacham, discern good from bad. Uh, just simply being able to tell the difference between what is good and what is bad. Uh, that's a basic elementary meaning, but that's all we can do for now. Then the word bana, which is translated understanding, has to do with how to do things. It, it, it's a it's a word referring to craftsmanship or invention or innovation or thinking outside the box or coming up with witty inventions, coming up with uh, ways to do things that nobody ever thought of before. And of course, sadly, any church that's under the power of a religious demon, their their last dying breath before they cease to exist is, we've never done it that way before. And the implication is, of course, if we've never done it, it's because it wasn't supposed to be done anyway except the way we do it. So, uh, see, the religious spirit is the opposite of creativity. It's the opposite of innovation. It's the opposite of thinking outside the box. And that's one reason why, again, I don't mean to insult anybody, but the I'll fly out of here any minute theology that per permeates the Western church, I believe, well, I don't have to believe it. I've watched it for 40 years. I've watched it turn us into people whose comfort is not bracing ourselves for battle, but comforting ourselves for uh, retreat. And, uh, you know, you have a a sermon on uh, end times, and everybody comes with notebooks and tape recorders, have a sermon on how to infiltrate the 1040 window and nobody shows up you know have a sermon on who the antichrist is going to be not that it matters because we're all going to be gone anyway everybody comes have a sermon on how to stand against the spirit of antichrist in christian religion and overcome it so we can begin to manifest the real kingdom and uh, nobody shows up well the the third word uh, for wisdom in hebrew uh, da'at really refers to, it's the word for knowledge, 
Knowledge, wisdom always go together in Hebrew. They don't separate them. You'll notice Hebrew has no word for philosophy. The love of wisdom. Hebrew doesn't love wisdom. Hebrew loves God. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because they never separated knowledge and wisdom from each other. To be wise is to have an understanding heart, and the reason you have an understanding heart is because you are intimately acquainted with the heart of God. You know him, and he knows you. You know, one way to remember this is the, 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 our word data, which means gathering of information, is how you know, we think of knowledge as data. But uh, in Hebrew, the word da'at, which is, you could use as a play on words in English, transliteration, da'at doesn't mean data. It means intimacy, knowing God on the heart level. And so this is what Paul is referring to, if you'll back up again to Colossians, that verse that I read to you from Colossians there. Uh, I want you to know what a great struggle I have on your behalf and for those at Laodicea and for all of you. Uh, I'm struggling so that you will be filled with courage, that you'll be knit together in love and attain all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, who is Christ. You see, what he's saying there is, even though he's writing in Greek, he's writing very Hebraically. He's saying, I'm not interested in you gathering information. I'm not interested in you just having, uh, uh, from the neck up, concepts in your head, dogmas. I want you to be filled with courage, and that courage, which is the power to stand against the battle and penetrate it for good, comes from full assurance of understanding, and that understanding comes from union with a person who is the mystery of God himself, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? Well, that's whatever you need at the time. And if the whole church all over the world is living this way, in union with Christ, in intimacy with him, seeking his face, yes, learning whatever disciplines we're in. I mean, I want an engineer to know his stuff. I want an airplane pilot, certainly, to know his stuff. Uh, whatever your expertise is in, you're pursuing it. But you're pursuing it under the power of the creator himself, who is Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, so you begin to get revelation knowledge uh, from him to direct you in, into directions that nobody's ever seen before. And that's why we end up with Ephesians 3.10 again. Through the church comes the complicated, many-sided variety of innumerable aspects of wisdom so that the principalities and powers get this creative power rubbed in their face by the church. When's that going to happen? Not off in heaven, not off in the millennium. Now, now, while the principalities and powers are destroying the earth and everything on it any way they can. Does that, does that make any sense? I hope it does. So, well, that's kind of my introduction. Now, uh, the three Hebrew words... Hakam, Bana, and Da'at, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, all go together, but they, the fountainhead of them is union, intimacy with Christ. Loving the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Now, when we begin to think this way, we stop thinking in terms of flying out of here and letting the world go to hell we begin to think in terms of confronting the world and being against the world for the world's sake and having answers, whether it's economic or political or racial or sexual or social or educational or you name it, the seven mountains uh, concept. Regardless of whether you, you understand those seven mountain uh, I can't go off right now on the seven mountains concept. And there's all kind of people who just go nuts saying, oh, that's a false doctrine because it, it implies we're not going to fly out of here like we thought. I keep coming back to that, don't I? I'm not, I really don't, I'm not trying to press that button. But maybe the Holy Spirit is. 
um, you know, when it's controversial, then we'll just blame the Holy Spirit and let myself off the hook. But, uh, and look, I'd say this. If you're not engaged in bringing the kingdom into your world in some form, and you're kind of taking comfort every day you get out of the bed that maybe the Lord's going to rapture you out today, I just, I don't, I can't comprehend living that way. If I'm going to be here, I want to occupy. And the word occupy doesn't mean take up space. It means do business. It, it means to uh, interact for creative, life-giving purposes. I got a, I got an email a few days ago from a dear friend, known him for many years, who just retired. And so now that he's retired, what's he doing? He's going into full-time prison ministry. So thankfully, now that he's retired and gotten work out of the way, he's he's beginning his life's work, which is penetrating the prisons and, and uh, bringing the kingdom into those prisons. Made my day getting that, that email. Now, God makes a difference between his own and the world. He always has. He did it with Israel. All the nations will look at you and say, what, what a great nation they are. Where did they get this great wisdom? Why do their marriages work? Why do they not have these dread diseases that we have from the terrible food we eat and the immoral sexual practices we practice? Why do they not live in terror and fear? Why do they live in peace even in the face of danger? Where do they get this great wisdom from? Uh, that's what God intends his people to to be like uh, in the close of the age. With persecution, with tribulation, yes. But, uh, you know, Paul is a great symbol of the end-time church. Paul himself, his life. Uh, not that we're all individually going to ever attain to the life of, of a St. Paul, but at the same time, uh, in some ways, we will. So, so Paul just you know faces all kinds of persecution, abuse, mistreatment, and yet at the same time, what does he do? Manifest miracles, heals, delivers, raises the dead. Himself is raised from the dead, uh, and just marches through the Roman uh, Empire with another kingdom that's coming to replace and overthrow the Roman Empire. And how do you have both? Well, look at Paul. How do you have tribulation and triumph? Look at Paul. How do you have uh, miracles and clear, good, solid theology? Look at Paul. How do you have deep, personal, intimate relationships and yet uh, influence the whole, the whole world, not even trying to? You're just living your life. That's what Paul did. So uh, that's what we are to do, and, and the, the way we do it, see, is not by looking to see if we're being effective so much as we just love Jesus and love the world and obey him. See, out of our union with him, he begins to awaken in us creative thinking, and then that creative thinking opens up the treasury of wisdom and knowledge that is needed to meet that need. Look, whether you're dealing with uh, the slave trafficking or you're dealing with a crooked boss who you know is robbing the company blind and you feel responsible, or you're dealing with a classroom full of kids who are under the power of the spirit of the age and they don't hear a word you say and don't care. I mean, I could name a million different categories. God wants to give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him so that the eyes of your heart will be opened so you will comprehend with all the saints the height, the breadth, the length, the depth, and to know the love of God that surpasses mere human knowledge so that you're filled with all the fullness of God. And in that fullness, it manifests itself through creativity and new thinking that causes you to think, get up in the morning with an excited air of what am I going to be able to do today that, that ruins the devil's plans and glorifies the Lord and blesses people. I want to be a problem for the devil. I want Jesus to manifest his many-sided, supernatural, unfathomable wisdom 
in all of its phases that I can possibly manifest in my generation. I want to do that. While the world is getting darker and darker, and, and though it seems to be getting stronger in its technology, look what that technology is producing. Now, I'm not anti-technology, but let's face it, folks. Television was supposed to be the greatest educational tool in the history of man. <laughs> it was, huh? Well, let's see. Uh, uh, I mean, thank God for the Internet when it's good. And uh, what about when it's not so good? It's like the River Ganges. It's got all kind of things floating in it, good and bad. And when the good is good, it's very good. When the bad is bad, it's hellish. So the, the, the technology of the world will finally end up in a system called Babylon. Babylon's already with us, of course, but the system, the throne of the Antichrist, the throne of the beast. Babylon, the place of, uh, of one world worship of devils, one world commerce, one world uh, perversions of every kind, all united against God. So uh, in Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 through 26, you have the picture of Moses standing against Egypt. And then in the book of Revelation, you have a picture of the end-time church standing against Babylon. And there's parallels here. I can only mention them briefly. They would take a full study, a long study to go into all the details. But Exodus 10, verses 21 through 26 says, The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days, it says. That's important. Three days. During those three days, the Egyptians could not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go worship the Lord. Only let your flocks and herds be detained. But you can even have your little ones, and they can go with you. Wasn't that good of Pharaoh? But Moses said, no, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice them to the Lord our God. Therefore, our livestock too will go with us. Not a hoof will be left behind, for we shall take some of them to worship the Lord our God. See, what's at stake here is worship. It's probably quite well known to Pharaoh that the land of Goshen, which means to draw near. Goshen means to draw near. It's a place where the people of God draw near to God. And that comes from its original uh, identity found in Genesis chapter 45, verses 10 and 11, where Joseph says, you shall live in the land of Goshen, and there you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. Pharaoh, as a satanic representative of uh, the opposition to God in the earth, purposely says, oh, you, you can go, I guess, and have your little church service with your God, but you'll not take your, your uh, flocks or your herds. He's trying to undermine the very meaning of Goshen, which is a place where they drew near. How did they draw near? With sacrifice and offering. Sacrifice in, in the Hebrew scriptures, by the way, is not an appeasement of God's anger. That's never what sacrifice is. Sacrifice is an act of loving worship. And he says, you, you can go do your little church service, but you cannot manifest loving, sacrificial worship in the earth. Uh, you, you, you're not going to be allowed to do that. So Moses says, no, we will do that. And uh, Moses and the Pharaoh says to him, well, make sure this is the last time I see your face. And Moses turns to him and says, you said it yourself. This is the last time I will ever look on your face, which is a very dramatic picture of what's coming. 
But uh, now, let's try to apply this to the end of the age, Revelation chapter uh, 8 says in verse 12, the fourth angel sounded his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars, a third of the light of day and even a third of the lights of the night were struck. A diminishing of light, an increase of darkness, a diminishing of, of help, a help and, and clarity, a removing of the uh, candlestick, so to speak. You remember in Revelation 2 and 3 where Jesus says, if you don't repent, I will remove your lampstand. I'll remove, I'll not hold a lamp for you so you'll have light to send by. I'll remove your light so your darkness will get deeper. Revelation 16 verse 10 carries this on further as, as the progression of evil in the end of the age goes forward. Then the fifth angel poured his bowl out on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. So in Revelation, you have the picture of the parallel of what we see in Exodus. Israel begins its salvation journey with conflict with Egypt, and one of the manifestations of, of the conflict is great darkness. But the darkness is so great in Egypt that it, it, it can be felt. I've been in that kind of darkness in my own life, darkness that can be felt. And it says they were not able to see each other. Boy, that's exactly what that darkness does. You're not able to see each other. There's no human warmth. There's no interaction. There's no closeness. There's the the disintegration on the inside of ever-increasing inner darkness in response to the outer darkness. It's a it's a vestibule of hell. But among the people of God in Goshen, where they've drawn near to God, there is supernatural light even in the face of this darkness. Well, then we have in Revelation a parallel of, of uh, manifest darkness. And as the darkness gets worse and worse, the light gets brighter and brighter. And uh, Daniel says at the close of the age that as the dark gets darker, we will shine like stars in the firmament. Permanent. As it gets darker in the world, we'll shine brighter. So let's try to apply this to our own present circumstances. First, we draw near. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We live in our own private Goshen. We live in the land of Goshen where God's blessings and protections are, even while we're in the world, but we're not of the world. Doesn't mean we don't have struggles, doesn't mean we don't have war, but we're not like those who war aimlessly. We're not like, we don't grieve like those who have no hope. We don't fight like those who beat the air. We don't wander like those who are in the, the darkness and the night of First Thessalonians 5. We don't sleep like those who are asleep in the night, or we don't get drunk like those who get drunk in the night. We don't live like the world. See, I'm preaching to the choir. I mean, nightlight people don't live like the world. But do you see, and, and I don't mean this to sound, I don't want us to become condescending and judgmental. It's just, no wonder the church makes the world angry. We, we don't live like what I'm describing. We, we do live in their foolish thinking. We practice their foolish practices. We, we can't keep our marriages together. I don't say that to hurt anybody listening who's been through agony of a divorce. But uh, the brokenness in my life is, is because I have acquiesced to some degree or other to the spirit of the age. So I'm not putting my finger in your face. I'm just trying to get us all to see how far off we are as the church from living anywhere close to what I'm describing here from Scripture. But he who has begun a good work in us will finish it. He will have a church without spot or wrinkle. But spots are, 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 are purged out with cleansing and wrinkles are pressed out with heat and pressure. <laughs> so that church without spot or wrinkle becomes manifested as we go through the fiery trials that First Peter talks about. 
so that in those trials we begin to be purged of worldly wisdom and, and false thinking and we begin to come into a, a, a sanctified mindset that can manifest this level of reality in the earth. And I, I want you to understand if you're going through some pressing, crushing even, seemingly crushing uh, circumstance, you're, you're really getting pressed. The wrinkles are getting pressed out by heat and pressure. And uh, if you get focused on the devil and think everything's always the devil, you'll, you'll lose heart. That's why Hebrews 12 says, uh, looking unto Jesus, the author and the developer or finisher or completer of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured what he went through so that we also might look on him and endure what we go through so that we don't give up and faint in our minds. The battle is in the mind. And if you're focused on Jesus and trusting him that he is sovereign above whatever the enemy might be doing to you, God will turn it for your good and manifest his character in you through it. So Paul says in Romans 8 that uh, this present, I, I, I consider this present suffering not to be worthy to even be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us and to us and through us. So that's what this is all about. So practical wisdom results from our worship. In our worshiping relationship, God begins to speak to us about what he wants us to do. Proverbs 27 verse 12 says, The prudent, the wise, see the evil coming and therefore make preparation. The foolish do nothing and get run over by it. That's a paraphrase, but you get the point. Um, Hebrews 11, verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned by God of things to come that were not yet visible, took action because of reverential fear and built an ark for the saving of his house. All three Hebrew words for wisdom come together here. Worship, understanding, and creative knowledge. They're all three here in the same verse. He worshiped God in his, in his devotion to God, his intimacy with God, his da'at, his, his, his knowledge of God gave him practical knowledge uh, that showed him what to do in the face of the wisdom of knowledge that said danger is coming, a flood is coming, tragedy is coming. Uh, he didn't sit back and say, you know, well, I'll, I'll do nothing then. He did the opposite. When it says he was moved with fear, sadly, the King James Version, people misinterpret. He was moved with fear. He said, oh, man, I better get, I better get off my tail and build a boat. I'm going to drown. That's not what he was saying. He was moved with godly reverence. Love and respect and honor for God. That's why he built the ark. It was not because he was terrified of drowning. It's because he honored the Lord. Okay, so uh, Proverbs twenty-seven, twelve: The prudent see the the evil coming and make preparation. The foolish don't. Hebrews eleven, seven: By faith Moses was warned by God of things to come and out of reverential fear, built the ark and saved his house. Now, what does that have to do with us? What are we being told in our private worship time with God? What are we hearing the Holy Spirit say? Um, some people are, are uh, storing food in, in case of emergency. Some people are learning how to farm. Some people are learning how to do things that most of us don't even have a, a concept of doing, like uh, you know, keeping purifying water or any number of other things. And uh, there's different opinions about this. Some people who are focusing on faith treat people who are doing practical things as if they have no faith. And then some people who are gathering material and and stockpiling material in case of danger 
quite often can manifest a spirit of self-reliance that seems to exclude any knowledge of God's provision and supernatural power to keep them. Both of them are missing the point. Those who have faith should not be criticizing those who are practically gathering, and those who are practically gathering should certainly not think that those walking in faith are being foolish and uh, not making preparation for impending doom. All of us are going to be called to do different things. Now look, let me give you an example right out of the scriptures. In Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, it says, this is about, I'm thinking about 46 A.D., At this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. And this famine did take place in the reign of Claudius. So the disciples decided to send relief to the church in Judea. Now, you see that? The, the disciples got a supernatural word from God. They took it in consideration, and then out of the best commonsensical wisdom they could apply, they decided to send relief to the church in Judea. Now, was the church in Judea walking in faith? Were they just saying, we don't have to do anything, we'll just trust God? I doubt it. I mean, they were doing what they had with what they had in their hand. But then uh, the church in Antioch uh, comes into the the mix as the provider of God's provision for for this situation. Now, it's not a matter of hoarding because we're fearful. But it's a matter of the release of the spirit of love, generosity, and faith in the face of a crisis. Remember what this whole time together about is the manifold wisdom of God being manifested through the church to the principalities and powers. So God is glorified in the earth through his people against spirits of wickedness. Now, um, in the closing moments we've got together, I want to read to you an extensive portion of Scripture that maybe you have not paid much attention to before. Second uh, Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And I'm going to read it from the message version because I just don't want to work very hard. And uh, sometimes certain passages of Scripture... They wear me out. Trying to read it in King James just wears me out. Trying to read it in the NIV doesn't help a great deal. And even the Living Bible can get cumbersome. So I'm going to go to uh, Peterson here. Because I want you to catch the flavor of this. And I think Peterson does it well here. He captures what I want to communicate in this. And I I want you to, this is Paul talking to the Corinthians about another set of dire circumstances. Ten years later, after this situation I just read to you about from Acts 11, where there's a a famine, and I mean, you can't get more cataclysmic in the ancient world than a, a widespread famine. And yet, you don't have Paul and the apostles and the leaders of the church panicking. They're not freaking out. They're, uh, they're just acting in spiritually informed wisdom to do what they think is the most practically minded, spiritually motivated, wisest thing to do in order to occupy the territory they've been given in the generation they live in. And they survived and thrived and were a blessing and were blessed in the midst of it all. Well, about 10 or 12 years later, same thing happens. There's a need in uh, another part of the body, and Paul is addressing that subject. And he says here in chapter 8, and this is a long chapter, chapters 8 and 9. Now, friends, I want to report on the surprising and generous ways in which God is working in the churches in Macedonia. 
fierce troubles came down on the people of those churches, pushing them to the very limit. The trial exposed their true colors. Now, if I don't get anything else across before I read the rest of this, get this. The trial exposed their true colors. Whatever is coming, whether it's a collapse of goods and services, whether it's international war, whether it's homegrown terrorism, whether it's natural disaster of various kinds, whatever happens, it's going to uncover our true colors. And I like the way he uses this phrase, true colors, because it harkens back inadvertently to Ephesians 3.10 again, where that Greek phrase there in Ephesians 3 the, the many-sided wisdom of God, the many-colored, I think I think it's uh, William Barclay whose translation says the many colors of God's wisdom, the shades of color. The trial exposed their true colors. They were incredibly happy, though desperately poor. Huh. Incredibly happy, though desperately poor. The pressure triggered something totally unexpected, an outpouring of pure and generous giving. I was there and saw it for myself. They gave offerings of whatever they could, far more than they could afford, pleading for the privilege of helping out in the relief of poorer Christians elsewhere. This was totally spontaneous, entirely their own idea, and caught us completely off guard. What explains it was that they had first given themselves unreservedly to God and then to us. The other giving simply flowed out of the purpose of God working in their lives. Intimacy of wisdom produces practical behavior of wisdom, which produces practical outcome of wisdom which rubs itself in the face of principalities and powers who think that humans just always react like uh, a bunch of wild animals when they can't get their way. Well, we don't operate that way. We don't think that way. It doesn't matter how hungry we are, how tired we are, how desperate we are. We will not behave in an unloving, fearful, appetite-controlled way. I'm saying that by faith, knowing that he has begun a good work in me. We'll finish it. So Paul says, this behavior by, by the people of God prompted us to ask Titus to bring the relief offering to your attention so that what was well begun could be finished up because you do so well in so many things. You trust God, you're articulate, you're insightful, you're passionate, you love us. Now do your best in this also. I'm not trying to order you around against your will, but by bringing in the Macedonians' enthusiasm as a stimulus to your love, I'm hoping to bring the best out of you. You're familiar with the generosity of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, rich as he was, gave it all away for us. In one stroke, he became poor so that we could become rich. So here's what I think. The best thing you can do right now is to finish what you started last year, and not let those good intentions grow stale. Your heart's been in the right place all along. You've got what it takes to finish it up, so get on with it. Once the commitment is clear, you do what you can, not what you can't. The heart regulates the hands. This isn't so others can take it easy while you sweat it out. No, you're shoulder to shoulder with them all the way. Your surplus matching their deficit, and one day their surplus will match your deficit. In the end, you come out even. As it is written, nothing left over to the one with the most and nothing lacking to the one with the least. See, this has parenthesis here from Clay. This has absolutely nothing to do with the communistic concept of equality by spreading the wealth around. It has to do sheer loving, giving, self-sacrifice because of love for Jesus and love for people. I thank God for giving Titus the same devoted concern for you that I have. Uh, he was most considerate of how we felt, but he, his eagerness to go to you and help out with this relief offering uh, is his own idea. 
we're sending a companion along with him. And then he goes on and talks about uh, how they plan to do all that. Now, move quickly to chapter 9 because I'm running short on time. Paul says, if I wrote any more on this relief offering for the poor Christians, I'd be repeating myself. I know you're on board and ready to go. I've been bragging about you all through Macedonia, telling them Achaia province has been ready to go on this since last year. He said, I've been bragging on your good intentions that you've never fulfilled. Your enthusiasm by now has spread to most of them. Now I'm sending the brothers to make sure you're ready as I said you would be so my bragging won't turn out to be just so much hot air. If some Macedonians and I happened to drop in on you and found you weren't prepared, we'd all be pretty red-faced, you and us, for acting so sure of ourselves. So to make sure there will be no slip-up, I've recruited some brothers as an advance team to come and receive your offering and have it all ready before I get there. I want you to have all the time you need to make this offering in your own way. I don't want anything forced or hurried at the last minute. It's very Jewish to say, I'm not pressuring you, but I just want to say, (laughs) you better get on with it. Remember, a stingy planter gets a stingy crop. A lavish planter gets a lavish crop. I want each of you to take plenty of time to think it over and make up your own mind what you'll give. That will protect you against sob stories and arm twisting. God loves us when the giver delights in giving. God can pour out the blessing in astonishing ways so that you're ready for anything and everything, more than just ready to do what needs to be done. As the psalmist put it, he throws caution to the winds, giving to the needy and reckless abandon. His right living, right giving ways never run out, never wear out. This most generous God, who gives seed to the farmer that becomes bread for your meals, is more than extravagant with you. He gives you something you can give away, which grows into full-formed lives, robust in God, wealthy in every way, so that you can be generous in every way, producing with us what gives great praise to God. Carrying out this social relief work involves far more than helping meet the bare needs of Christians. It also produces abundant, bountiful thanksgiving to God. Notice Paul's theme is not fear of the Antichrist or fear of the devil or fear of tragedy in the earth. It's all about God's generosity and God's people manifesting his generosity in the earth as a slam in the face of principalities and powers, bringing glory to God and blessing and strength to God's people.